Welcome to Second Win, the podcast where we uncover the stories, methods, and modalities of women and men who have found their purpose while walking this earth. Sometimes they found their second win by accident, sometimes by hardship, and sometimes by intent. There is always something to learn from others and really isn't finding our own purpose what we are all looking for. I know I am. And that's why I'm hosting this very podcast. My name is Wendy Charles McGuire. Thank you for listening and let's get to it. Welcome Second Wind. I am so excited and honored to have with me today, David Richmond. He's a husband, a father of two. He's a corporate businessman, a motivational speaker, a personal consultant, an athlete. He trains people. And he wrote this book called Cycle of Lives, along with another book called Winning in the Middle of the Pack. But that's not the book we're going to talk about today. David's manager reached out to me on LinkedIn, something I didn't even want to be part of, but boy, am I glad I did, and said, hey, David has a second wind. I think he'd be great for your podcast. Do some research. And the bike ride, there is a 5,000-mile bike ride that's part of and kind of weaves this story, all the stories of this book together. And I was like, oh, I did the Ram race, race across America. We have that in common. And then we got on the phone and great conversation. And then I got the book and listened to it on Audible for like the last four days straight. And I can't stop thinking about the people that I listen to, their stories, how you wove it all together. And Knowing your backstory and how you even got there to even do this book is incredible. So I'm just thrilled to have you. So welcome, David, to the podcast. Thank you, Wendy. And we do have that in common. Isn't it funny how no matter which direction you're going, up, down, sideways, left, right, north, south, east, west, the only truth about biting across the country is the wind's always in your face. It's something it really is. Right. I remember that from the book. You're like, yeah. and of course I have a headwind. <laughs> I mean, right. Isn't it? It's, it's, it's just unbelievable. Well, you hear about people who talk about the tailwind and you're like, Ooh, I would like to experience that sometime. <laughs> yeah. I I'm not exaggerating. 41 out of 45 days. I biked one day. I had a tailwind. one day, one day. Yeah. You wrote about that. Well, I'm so excited to have you here. And well, and you said that in your book too, that there are no coincidences. And I love how you, you say a lot of the things that I believe in, where at the right time, the right person shows up. At the right time, you have no more inner tubes left. And this guy shows up on the side of the highway and sends you to a bike shop and everybody like hands you everything you need. And it's, it just happens that way. And I think if we're in our second one, if we're in our, in our purpose, of why we're here to begin with. And we figure that out. And we listen to our intuition, things like that happen. It just, all the doors open and they did for you. So let's start with, well, let's start with, there was a couple of things. You have more than one second wind. The first one really started your trajectory into getting out of where you, where you were residing for 30 plus years in kind of a yucky marriage that you didn't realize how was how bad it was. And then your friend said to you, what? <laughs> so, ay, ay, ay. so, okay. So I have, I'm stressed out. I'm, I'm finding every problem in the world to try to fix and I can't fix it. And 
you know, I, I'm not, I'm not surrounding myself with the right people. And it's just, I'm, I'm just completely stressed out and, and just really frustrated with banging my head against the wall with regards to people and situations and relationships and whatever else. And I'm sitting around with my friend, Chris, and I started complaining. My wife at the time, what she was a pretty violent person, you know, had, had some issues and I just, well, I was complaining to him. I'm like, Chris, man, I just can't handle it anymore. She's like this, and then this thing over here, and this thing over there. And he stood up and he goes, man, he goes, for four years, I've been listening to you. He goes, and you know what? You're the problem, dude. You're the problem. And I'm like, what? I'm not the problem. There, this, and that, this, and that, blah, 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 blah. And he goes, no, man. He goes, listen, like everything in your life is a wild dog. And it's a, it's a wild dog and you bring it home and you shower it and you give it food and you give it a place to, and then you go to pet it and it bites you. And you're like, what the heck, dude? I goes, why don't you look in the mirror and realize why are you bringing all these wild dogs into your life? Like, why does everything have to be a problem? You're the problem, dude. You got to look at what's causing you to make all these bad decisions. Like wild dogs can't help it, man. Problems are what they are. They cannot fix themselves. They can't be a different way. It's like that, you know, the scorpion and the alligator thing. It's like, you know, I mean, the problems are, they don't know any better. And they're like, and I go, oh, you know, this person's so mean. And they go, he said to me, he goes, man, they don't know they're mean. They can't help it. What's your problem that you think you can change them? And I'm like, oh, shoot. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, yeah. ding. Well, and a lot of that stems, yeah, from, so, well, keep going, keep going, because then we'll go back, because there's a reason for that. Yeah, so so the reason for that is, in, I didn't know at the time, right? I mean, that was a light that went off that said, hey, man, you know, pick your head up and look in the mirror. And what it came from was a lifetime of keeping my head down and plowing forward and overcoming whatever trauma and adversity I had, but not really understanding the world around me and how I related to it. So I was really good at no set of grindstone, head down, plow forward, overcome. You know, I was at that time, I was running a hundred million dollar in revenue business for a Wall Street firm and I hadn't even gone to college, right? So I'm good at plowing ahead, nose to the grindstone, like just move forward, figure out a way to dig yourself out of the hole that you might have even dug yourself, right? I'm just good at keep my head down. And when when my buddy told me that, I just said, Man, like you gotta pick your head up and look at the Look in the mirror. Like, who are you? What do you stand for? What do you like? What don't you like? Like, what's, why are, why, why are you attracting all these problems? What's your, what's your problem, dude? Like, what, what is your problem? And I made an assessment. I, I literally, Wendy, I literally stood in front of a mirror for 45 minutes, maybe an hour going, man, like, really? Like, what, like, what's your story? Who are you? You like looking yourself in your own eyes, scary. trying to figure it out. First time in my life. That is scary. It was very, very scary, very uncomfortable place to be. But you know what? It's just I heard what I heard at the right time, and and I needed to do that. And some of the things I liked, a lot of the things I didn't like. But one thing I I knew for sure is that I didn't know very much. I just didn't. I didn't know. You know, I I just. I just wasn't aware. I wasn't self-aware. I was super observant. Like, how do you solve the problem? Okay, good. I got it. How do you come out of the room a survivor? I got it. Some things I really, I was really, really good at. And I have 
you know, if everybody takes an assessment, everybody has a couple of superpowers. I had a couple of superpowers and yeah, I used those to my benefit, but man, I was not aware and I needed a lot to learn. And I didn't know at the time, but the step one of taking this honest assessment in the mirror, which is really, really hard, led to step two, which didn't happen overnight. And I certainly didn't do it consciously, but looking back, I absolutely I needed to do it. And, and that was to forgive myself and just go, look, dude, you didn't hear it before. You're hearing it now. Just go forth. Like, right now, you know, you didn't know yesterday. So now, you know, right. And, and that's a really hard thing to do because a lot of times you get into your mid to late thirties and life is what it is. And, you know, you kind of have a rear view mirror, kind of look at your progression and your development. And I said, no, 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 man, I got to start my development. I got to start figuring out who I am and how I relate to the world. So that was in retrospect that, you know, what really the beginning of, you know, act two, second win, you know, David 1.0 to David 2.0. So, yeah, you, and you didn't, and it's not like you didn't have a lot of self-awareness because you didn't grow up in a very nurturing environment to put it mildly. Can you share a little bit about that? And and that leads us to why this, your relationship with your sister was so much of a lifeline for you. Mm -hmm. And also I understood why I attracted problems and why I also was really good at just grinding forth because I didn't have a choice. Right. So my, Parents were nearly 40 years age and difference. My mom was... That in itself is incredible, right? You only hear about that every now and then. Yeah, you just hear about it every now and I understand it. You know what? I'm not making a judgment of, of whether it's right or wrong. I, I guess I can understand both, both sides of it. But when I was born, my mom was 21. My dad was nearly 60. And he was an old 60. So he was too old to have kids and didn't really know how to handle them and probably didn't really want them around. My mom was too young to have kids. I think she pretended like she liked them, but she really didn't like kids. She certainly didn't like her own kids very much. You could tell by by her actions that she really didn't want to have kids. So it was a pretty lonely childhood in that respect. But I did have a sister who was only 16 months difference in age, and we had that same experience together. You know, like, I just remember one... I remember the view of my house and me and my sister waiting across the street because my mom was a writer and she said, you know, don't come home until dark, but don't you dare come home after dark. And it's like, oh, that's a tough window. <laughs> yeah. So my sister and I would like wait across the street and wait for the street lights to come on. And the second the street lights come on, run across the street and then walk through the door. And it's like, that's oh what we figured. So it was like, it was a weird child, but we had, we had, you know, we dealt with a lot of stuff, you know, together. And so at 18, I left home and, and really ran into some very, very hard times early on with nobody to call. And really every once in a while, Kalina, my sister, but yeah, really, if you want to call digging holes, I had some really, really deep holes to dig out of early in life and no mentor, no nurturing, nobody you know, I remember the one time I was in a really, really difficult situation, had zero clue how to handle it. And I hadn't talked to my mom in about a year. I was maybe 19. 
and they called her up to say, Hey, I need your advice. She's like, Hey, it's your life. Click. And I'm like, Oh, all right. I guess, I guess I know where, where that source is going to go. So, you know, everybody, I guess in retrospect, some of my strength comes from having no one to lean on, but I also know that I didn't have direction, mentorship, guidance, somebody holding your hand saying, Hey, maybe you want to try this. Maybe you want to go down this path or, you know, trying to, trying to teach you and guide you. So I sure could have used that, but you know what, again, you know, we're dealt with, you know, cards that we were dealt with, we got to deal with and you either make the most of it or not. And I'm very fortunate in a lot of ways. So I don't carry a grudge about it, but the reality is that it definitely handcuffed me in my personal development because I found out way too many things the hard way. And when you find out things the hard way, sometimes it takes a lot longer for you to, you know, recognize, you know, the value of that or what the lessons learned are because you're in the middle of a, you know, a, a dark room trying to figure out how to survive. And once you get out and you go, oh, okay, I get it now. Get it now. But in the meantime, what, what landmines did you step on? Right. Yeah. You know, and, and it took me a lot. I didn't have somebody at 18 or 16 or 20 going, look, man, if you dig this hole, here's what's going to happen. Right. If, if you make this decision, you know, have you thought about this or maybe you want to go this way or whatever. Instead, I, you know, I, I found myself in a situation where either, you know, I found myself at the bottom of a hole or I dug the bottom of the hole. And then you spend all your time getting out and then you figure out what lessons that I learned. That's a long process versus having a mentor. And I've had a few very late in life, a, a couple, a couple of mentors. And man, I, I sure appreciate the lessons that they imparted on me rather than me having to learn every lesson the hard way. And when I looked in the mirror, that day, and I remember the day, clear as day, it was 20 years ago, but I, I said to myself, you know what, you have learned a lot of hard lessons, like a lot of lessons, but you never learned how to apply them to yourself. Maybe you should start there. Start there. Right, right. And somewhere in that, as you're, as you're digging your way out as a young man, you get married. And how'd that go? That was not good. Yeah, that was a big, I mean, I, I know now it was my fault. Right. Because I, you know, silly as it sounds that you think, you know, you can't, you got to discount how smart I am when I tell you how dumb I was, because I can't be smart being that dumb. But here's how dumb I was is that, you know, during when I'm going through it, I realized I married my mom. Like I didn't know that at the time. I wasn't even slightly aware of it, but with somebody who was mean and angry and not personable and and belittling to people and never could be made happy and and you know don't invade my space when I don't want you to be I mean very very difficult person and all I did for years was try to figure out a way to make them happy make them in a place where I would feel that they they would love me and that's I was never able to do that with my mom I'm guessing I, I know I wasn't and so I guess I chose un- unconsciously, I chose someone who I could mirror that, those feelings, those emotions. And maybe if I could, and I didn't know this again at the time, but if I could get this person to love me or cherish me or guide me or be a you know part of me, then, you know, it might make up for that. And then I realized, you know, one day, no, I mean, no, you know, you can't, you can't marry your mom. You know, I, a lot of guys say, but you know, oh, when you're ma- when you're meeting 
a girl, you got to make sure one thing's for sure that she doesn't have daddy issues, right? Well, I got to tell you something. More than that, if you meet a dude and he's got mom issues, unless he really has framed them properly, like you, you might want to ask him to, to get some counseling, right? Yeah, I would agree with that. You know? Yes, yeah, I think about my friends. I'm like, gosh, I hope they don't have mommy issues. I know, I know. It's a big deal. And a lot of it is, is learning about yourself and how you process things before you get into a relationship. But how many people really do that? Hey, I knew I was really good at solving problems. So I picked a real doozy of a problem to solve and it was not solvable. It was a wild dog that was going to continually get bit on because the dog didn't know any better. And that's just the way the problem is. Problems are what they are. And you got to determine, is it worth the effort to try to fix it or deal with it or whatever? Because most problems, they can't go away, especially if it's people, right? They, they are, People are who they are. They don't change unless they want to. They don't evolve unless they want to. They don't transform unless they, they don't become compassionate overnight just because you're asking them to. I love this. I don't know if you remember the, the movie uh, Bruce Almighty. And like this one thing that God wouldn't let him do was make somebody love him. He's like, yeah, that's like, that's what I've been trying. Yeah, that's the whole thing about it. It's right. And he's screaming at Jennifer Anderson, why won't you love me? Right. Because he can't make her love him. And it's like, what a lesson to learn, man. You can't make people do what you want them to do just because you want it. And it took me a long time to figure that out. Right. You can only change how you think and what the ticker tape is going on in your brain. So take us forward from your, so then your friend says, hey, I'm kind of sick of hearing you bitch and moan because you keep bitching and moaning about the same stuff. Brings up the wild dog thing, which is a great way to put that. And then flash forward to your sister and what was going on with that. And you got divorced in all of that. And then you decided to embark on this amazing journey. Yeah. So it didn't happen over a super long period of time. It wasn't like a bunch of light switches going off at once, but it didn't happen over a very long period. In a very short period of time, I gave myself. I developed the strength through what I needed here at the right time and all the circumstances that were going on in my life. You know, I, I got my kids and me out of that situation. They were only four. My twins are only four at the time. And I you know, looked in the mirror and I made that assessment. I gave myself the opportunity to say, okay, what can you learn? And, you know, you need to stop smoking. You need to not be overweight. If you want to be an athlete, you got to be athletic, you know, like, if you get your whole life ahead of you, start figuring out who you are and who you want to be. And I thought, man, this is fantastic. You mean I get to live on purpose? You know, I get to be in charge of, of things. And that was a real empowering thought for me. And I just metaphorically saw this huge road ahead of me of all these endless possibilities and development, transformation and learning and figuring stuff out and becoming enlightened about myself and how I interact with the world. And it was like, wow, man, you know, I got all this optimism and, you know, I'm leaning into the future with, with all of my heart because I never had, had had that feeling. At the same time, my sister called me up and said, hey, I got uh, terminal brain cancer. So you're getting new, a new leash on life, as you put it. And then you found out your sister is facing the end, basically. So her, her, road, her road is very short. You know, I mean, that was very stark to me because especially from where we had come from, 
she was way more evolved and way more grounded and way more connected to the to the world around her. She had great marriage. I mean, good kids. I was I had good kids, but but I mean, she was really close to her family, really close to her her husband's family. Great circle of friends. You know, really kind of grounded in who she was and her place in the world. And I admired that about her. I didn't always like everything about her, but I admired that about her because I'm like, man, from where we came from, for you to be so genuine and loving and accept love and give love and like understand your place in the world and how you relate to people. I was just like, oh man, like, wow, I wish I could be like that. So it was just a little more stark for me because yeah, I did admire her in that way. And I, I'm just like, man, she's living her best life. She should be given a lot longer than, you know, than, than a couple more years, if, if that even. So kind of made me even more focused and, and dogmatic in my approach to my future, right? Like I got, I, I got to really go after it. And that came true. Oh God, time is not really what I would like it to be. Like it could just be what's in front of me today. Did you have those thoughts? Like, okay, that just happened. You know, now what? Like when I, I got a message today, one of the gals I know, her, her husband died last night. He suddenly had chest pains and he died. I'm like, oh crap. Like that could be, it, it just reminds us we're here for just a minute, a minute. Dr. Myers from the book, she told me something. She said, look, David, the human brain is just not wired to contemplate its own mortality. We can't do it. We just can't do it. She goes, I deal with death all the time. You know why I became an oncologist? I go, why? She goes, every other oncologist became an oncologist for the same reason, if they know it or not. And I go, what? She goes, because it'll give us karma so we won't die of cancer. Oh, she goes, yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. like, what? And, you know, I mean, I'm sure she was being a little bit facetious, but she was just like, we can't wrap our brains around it. And so it's really hard to accept our mortality. It's really hard to wrap our brains around it because you could be frozen by fear. You could be frozen by anxiety over it. You could say, well, what the hell is the point of anything then if I could die at any time? And that's not really the right approach. So yeah, it's it's a weird thing, but certainly when you're hit with something like, oh my God, I can't even imagine what your friend must be going through today. But Oh, I know. But when you're hit with something like that, secondarily, you know, you're not even the primary person. You just sit back and go, oh my God, what the hell? And I did that with my sister and it really allowed me more focus on seeing like how, what could I, what's the most I could give to her during that time, you know, within the boundaries that, that we could have and what, what could I take from her in that time? What kind of time was that? What was she diagnosed with, June? What was she diagnosed with? She was diagnosed with a very kind of rare type of brain cancer. It was so rare, in fact, that uh, the cancer center that took care of her at UCLA made a board study out of her. And it just happened to be that an oncologist on the East Coast who specialized in brain cancer was diagnosed with that same cancer. And he was on the, he was part of the board study as well. And so she, she had a tremendous care and tremendous attention and probably extended her life a bit and I'd say from diagnosis to death was just under about four years. It was a pretty long time. And, you know, and the, and the cancer metastasized. And, you know, in, in the end, it was whatever cancer killer, who knows. But, or I don't know. I'm sure, I'm sure the doctors do. It doesn't really matter at that point. But the silver lining, at least, and I know this is a morbid thought, but the silver lining to cancer, as opposed to what happened to your friend last night, is 
that it can give you the opportunity sometimes to reconcile relationships, to wrap your brain around it, to close some boxes up, to wrap some things up that you might want to wrap up, to lean into the most that you can give to others or the most that you could take in those final moments, days, months, years, whatever. If cancer, terminal cancer has a silver lining, that would be it. Yeah. And that was definitely, that was shared in some of the stories of the book for Mm -hmm. sure. Mm. Oh yeah. Like Bobby's story, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Ah, they're so good. It's so good. You have to, you have, I listened to it on Audible, but I'm going to get the book anyway and share it with all the readers in my family because it's so good people. I cannot, I cannot share how great it is enough. Anyway. So you, you get the word about your sister and that, how does that move you forward other than like, I'm going to do what I can for my sister. I want to be more like her. I want to figure out, you know, why this is happening kind of thing or what's going on that makes you move forward. I think I wanted to be more at peace and more aware of my place in my world because we're all just living our lives. But when I was looking at her living her life, I'm like, eh, she's probably living her best life. I'm definitely not. And, you know, I, I can do better and I should do better. Now I have an opportunity to because I'm finally picking my head up and becoming self-aware. I'm finally going to forgive myself for all the time I've wasted and making bad decisions and not knowing any better because I know better now. And I can start to, I can be important enough to start living on purpose, right? Make myself a priority, care about the person in the mirror as much as anyone else, which is a hard thing to do. It was a hard thing for me to, and, you know, kind of exactly at that same time, you know, my daughter just turned five. She knew that June was. Yeah, this is a big moment. Yeah, big moment for me. She knew that June was diagnosed with cancer and somehow, some way in preschool or kindergarten, whatever, somebody she had heard or a teacher had told her, came into her orbit in a five-year-old's way that uh, cancer is caused by smoking. And she said, well, you stop smoking so you don't die. Like, and June's going to die. And she said that to you one day randomly. Yeah. Just randomly. Well, I asked her, I said, I said, Danielle, you're five years old, man. When are you going to quit sucking your thumb? And she said, that's right. Sucking thumb thing. (laughs) Yeah. She goes, well, when are you going to not smoke cigarettes? Because I don't want you to die of cancer. Like, and June's going to die. And I went, what the hell is that? You're five. So I had never tried to quit smoking because. I knew, well, first of all, probably because I was pretty weak and wanted to keep smoking. But part of it was I didn't want to fail at it because I felt like if I failed at quitting smoking, I'd be one of those people who's like, like really, you know, severely overweight. And you go, yeah, I need to know, I need need to go on a diet. You go on a hundred different diets and they don't work because you actually don't do the thing you need to do. And I didn't want to quit smoking and fail at it because I didn't want it to become okay to fail at something like that, because then I'd never quit. And so when I did hear it, because I told myself a hundred times to quit, people had told me a hundred times to quit, but I didn't, I wasn't ready to quit until, I, you know, Danielle's like, well, why don't you quit smoking? And I'm like, okay, deal. You stop sucking your thumb, I'll quit smoking. And so like a week later, I, I smoked my last cigarette. It took her a long time to stop sucking her thumb, to be honest with you, <laughs> but whatever. I'm the adult. I. I got a higher level of responsibility, but yeah, I stopped smoking and went for a run 
and not a long run, less than, less than two minutes. And it wasn't a run. It was a slow jog that I couldn't last two minutes on. But eventually I got to the point where I started to lose weight. And I mean, you know, six weeks after stop smoking, I did a 5k and. Yeah, that's incredible. We have to like, just talk about that for a second, because I asked you in our pre-call, like, so it was your last cigarette, your last day, and you decided to go running? Yeah. Like, why running? Because I thought I'd look really stupid with a cigarette in my mouth if I was running. <laughs> so I figured if I ran, I wouldn't smoke. Because I could do almost anything and smoke. Almost anything. I could eat and smoke. I could work and smoke. I could hang out on a bar and smoke. Hell, I could even sleep and smoke. I wake up and have a cigarette, right? Who, who doesn't, right? I mean, you can do everything and smoke. You can't really run and smoke. You certainly can't swim and smoke at the same time. So I, I just thought, like, like do things that you can't do what and smoke at the same time. So I said, ah, let's let's start running. And then, granted, I, I only ran for a couple of minutes, but I, I, I use that as a, as a thing to say, okay, well, if you're gonna if you're gonna run, you can't smoke. Like, you can't do it. You can't do it. Don't feel quite. And you kind of decided then you were going to become a runner. Is that how that happened? Because now, now flash forward, you teach people how to do yeah. five days and marathons and half marathons. And ultra you're, you're marathons. Kind of, you're three weeks into a course right now on how to run a half marathon. Did you even have any idea? You no, would be... of course not. That's crazy. I mean, who knew? Who knew that I could become a runner? I mean, I was 38 years old. I had never run as an adult. And I was overweight. I was a smoker. I, I was not, I, I didn't see myself as an athlete. And in fact, even after I quit smoking, even after I lost weight, I'd done 5K, a 10K, a sprint triathlon, an Olympic triathlon. And then all of a sudden in July of that year, so we're only talking about five months later, maybe six months later, I went to go do a half Ironman. And I, I'm looking at the start line and it's a wave start. And for those that don't know what a wave start is, different age groups go off at different times because they don't have the capacity for everybody to go off at once. And so you might not, you might start 10 minutes later, but your your personal clock doesn't start for 10. So I'm looking, I go to the start line, Wendy, and every person looks like a Greek god or goddess. And I'm like, collectively, they have an ounce of fat. And I go, what the hell are you even doing here, dude? Like, seriously, like, go home, man. You're not an athlete. I mean, look at you. You're, you're, you know, you're barely out of being an overweight smoker. And look at these people, like they're real athletes. Go home. You don't belong here. And so I almost, I literally almost turn around to go back into my car and drive home and say, what the hell was I doing there? The gun goes off and it was hilarious. Yeah. Okay. 90% of the Greek gods and goddesses took off, but there was 10% there that flopped over on their back and started doggy paddling and some that, you know, swam in circles in the first 10 feet, you know, and, and I'm like, I started laughing and I said, shoot, and if they don't care what anybody thinks, you know, they're just trying to figure it out. Why don't you go to the start line and try to figure it out? So I had no idea. I had no idea about this. Yeah. That's amazing. Okay. So, so bring us forward now. So what's the timeline now? Where's your sister at with her health and bring us along the timeline to the, to do the bike ride. Yeah. So, so she's going through, you know, surgeries and chemo and radiation and living her life and she's still working and trying to, you know, take care of the kids and be a great wife and all the things that she's doing. And we're living our lives. We've got a lot of time to spend together. We talk a lot on the phone. She looked pretty close. So we got to see each other quite a bit. 
And over the next year or two, I continue to heal from, you know, being out of a bad relationship. I try to figure out how to become happier at work and live more purposefully. You know, I'm, I'm kind of, I have this idea of even the, the things you do for others is a self-care if that's what you really want to do. So anything I did wasn't a burden. It was more of a choice, you know? And so it was funny because my kids would say, oh, you don't have to cook dinner. You don't have to. I go, I don't have to. You're right. I get to. So everything became like a get to instead of a have to, you know, which was really, which was really a, a great way to rewire my brain because, you know, even doing endurance events, I started thinking, oh, you know, this is so hard. And, blah, blah, blah. and I'm like, dude, like you get to do this stuff. Shut the hell up. Like, really, if you don't want to do That's it, don't so do it. Funny. I've had people ask me, so why are you doing that? Why are you doing Why are you running? Why are you doing that? I'm like, because I can. It's that simple. It's hard to get there, though. It's hard to get there. Right. We don't always have a choice. Like, when you go to, to the grocery store and there's one checker open and there's six people in front of you, you don't get to wait in line for 40 minutes. Right, you have to wait in line for forty minutes. No, but you can strike up a conversation, but, right. and who knows? What I'm saying is, though, not everything in life is a get to, but most things are. Most things are, especially if you're real. So I was learning how to rewire my brain. I was learning how to become athletic. I was learning how I interacted with the world, and trying to become a more grounded, authentic, on purpose kind of kind of person. Doing a lot of self care. Maybe not making 100% good decisions, but making a heck of a lot more good decisions than bad ones, but starting to learn. And then we get to the point where June's near the end of her life. We're a few years in now. And she said to me, she goes, listen, man, I'm doing this Relay for Life thing for the American Cancer Society. And they got this whole Team June Buggies. You know, her name is June. Her name, June Buggy. Yeah, her I name was uh, June Buggy. Yeah, so they, they had the June Buggies. and. It was a big team of people that wanted to get together and, and honor her. And she said, listen, man, I don't care what you have to do. Drag me out there, whatever. I'm going to go watch these people for the whole 24 hours. And I'm like, man, you are not in good shape. I'll run the whole 24 hours. We can, we can hang out together. Explain what it is for people who might not know. Yeah. So really for life is put together a team of people. Could be two people, could be 200 people. And the American Cancer Society put these on all over the country, all, all the time. And they're usually held at a local high school or college track. And it, they're very informative, educational, bonding things. You get to learn about uh, different types of treatment and different kinds of mindset and the, you know, find products that help you and ways to navigate the insurance world. I mean, they're really amazing things. And all these teams get together and they raise funds and raise awareness and and a place for healing and bonding for people that are going through cancer and or their providers, their caregivers, their loved ones, you know, the people that are have the secondary trauma of watching people deal with cancer. And they're really wonderful, really great events. So you're out there from six in the morning until the following six in the morning, and somebody is on the track from your team at all times as a way to kind of fulfill the obligation of, of being there for 24 hours. And it doesn't, you know, not everybody has to be there, but, but everybody, you know, the teams are out there. So I said to June, if you're going to watch the team for 24 hours, I'll, I'll be on the track for the whole 24 hours. And so I, I did the training for it as, as much as you could. And we talked about it, we prepped and the whole thing. And then two days before the event, she passed away. So she didn't get to watch the team 
yeah, it was, it was, it was pr- pretty tragic for her because I know I know she really wanted to, to do that. But I I made it. My, my kids by this time were almost nine. I think they were nine. And they, they were out there with me for, gosh, maybe like 20 of the 24 hours. They were, oh my gosh. They were amazing. They, they, at nine years old, they did like 30 miles or 31 miles, something like that around the track. It was, it was unbelievable. Yeah, it was, it was insane. But I did, I was out there for the whole 24 hours. And I realized, Wendy, when I was observing people, because I really kept my head up at that point in my life, my head was up. And I was really observant and watching people and realized that when it came to the tasks of their cancer, you know, how do we get more information and how do we navigate the healthcare system? How do I get my kids watched when I'm going through chemo? How do I eat healthier? These kind of things are really powerful, high energy, very interactive, you know, let's talk it to death kind of things, which is awesome. But when it came to the emotional side, when it came to how do you feel about it? When it came to how are you dealing with, you know, the heaviness of it. When it came to the hard emotional discussions, man, people zipped up. It was very, people were crickets. crickets. Yeah. And that, that is something that I did want to bring up today because that's something that you want people to understand about your book is how to have the conversations and that the conversations really need to be had. So. I digress. Let's keep going from the Relay for Life. You make it, you do it. That must have been so bittersweet. It was. It was a really seminal point in my life only because, you know, the emotions were really raw. And yet still so many people came and did their best to put on a a smiling face for June and remember her. I mean, look, everybody there was dealing with something, either the loss of somebody that they loved or knew or or somebody that was going through something very difficult. And, and it's kind of, I don't know, somewhat comforting to know that you're not alone. Like, I mean, nobody can understand your grief and you can't really understand theirs, but you know, you're, so just to be put on a track with hundreds of people that are kind of experienced the same type of trauma, you know, is this, it's a less lonely place than if you just lock yourself in a room and and take a box of tissues and hide under the covers. That's a little more lonely, right? So in that way, it was, it was good. It was, it was great to see the way my kids interacted with people. They were amazing. So it was a really powerful day. And really the seeds were sown when I, in the middle of the night at the really dark, quiet times that it was also the quiet times of people not interacting. And I thought to myself, what a lonely place it could be when you're really dealing with the harsh reality of the loneliness and the difficulty of navigating traumas like cancer, how, and what a lonely place it can be. And why is it that it's so lonely? I mean, oh my gosh, you know, like, what do you say to your friend that calls you yesterday? I said, ah, if you have the strength to not just go, oh my God, that's terrible. And try to exit the conversation because you don't want to say the wrong thing. If you're strong enough to not do that, then maybe you can engage in a conversation, but it's really hard. I mean, it's really hard. What do you say to people? You don't want to say the wrong thing. They don't want to say the wrong thing. They don't want to bring you down. They don't want to burn you. They're ashamed. They're embarrassed. They're wallowing in self-pity. I don't care what, what the reasons are. It's still hard for people to connect. Even people that are super close and love each other and have gone through other things together. Sometimes it's really hard for them to bond on an emotional level about trauma. 
and really odd about the trauma cancer that they can't. And so I, I, it just hit me like, man, we got to figure out why is that? Why, why is it so hard? Did you have unfinished? Did you have that connection with June, your sister? Or did, are you looking back at it at this point going, oh, I wish we had really talked more about her feelings? I felt fortunate. No, no, I felt fortunate that we, we pretty much talked about everything. We did. Yeah. Now, if there were a thousand things we could have talked about, I'm going to say, you know, 700, we should have talked about. Okay. Maybe 300 weren't my business to talk about or her business to talk with me about. Right. Right. I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, I got every word on every page of the book of life of June. That That's not possible. But, but the things right. that I think that we should have talked about, I think we did, you know? And, okay. And, and I mean, I remember sitting on her porch and she, she was watching her kids and my kids jump on a trampoline and, and she was really sick. And I just saw her looking very serious. She was, she wasn't a very like somber person, she was very upbeat. And I really was nervous to ask her, but I said, what is going on in your head right now? Which right. is a really scary thing to ask somebody. You don't know and you don't know how you're going to handle yeah. it, right? And she looked at me and she said, well, she goes, man, she was the hardest thing about this whole dying thing is I'm not going to watch those kids grow up. Ugh. And I went, Ugh. Ugh. and I go, man, I go, I go, does it make you feel bad to know I'm going to watch my kids grow up? And she goes, I don't know. I mean, that's great. I'm good for you. She goes, it just sucks though, that I'm not going to be able to do that. And to know that she felt that way instead of to assume it gave us a level of bonding that was, I, I don't think, you know, not, not everybody is given the opportunity to bond with someone at that level during those times. And I've found mm-hmm. myself many, many, many times in my life not being able to say what's going on. You mm-hmm. know, talk to me. I, I would much rather keep my arms distance and go, man, I don't want to say the wrong thing. So I better not say anything at all. Right. You know? And yeah. and so, yeah, so we did. I, I feel like we did. And I'm not suggesting that nobody has the ability to have hard conversations with people. What I am suggesting is that we all have at some level an understanding of we don't know what people are going through. We don't know what they have gone through. They don't know what we're going through. and They don't know what we have gone through. And when it when we're given the opportunity to form a deep, connecting, authentic, real, you know, interaction with someone, what what can we do to maybe enhance that a little bit? What can we do to take right. advantage of it a little bit? Because a lot of those opportunities go go by. They really do. They do. I told you. Yeah, I told you that my dad was basically dying for two years, yeah. right? We knew he was going to die. Like if I went away for a weekend or something, I'd be like, oh crap, I hope this isn't when my dad's going to die. It was one of those things. And, you know, I remember sitting there with him and spending time with him, doing even the little feeding tube into his stomach, knowing how prideful he is that his daughter doing that's kind of like not great. And you don't, and I never just asked him, wow, how do you feel about this? Mm -hmm. You know, what lessons, what do you want me to know? you know, anything like that. And I don't know why. And I would think that I'm kind of a, always have been an empathic and empathetic and caring, feeling kind of person. Yeah. So 
that's why your book is so interesting to me. I could totally relate to you, Wendy. I could totally relate to that because let me tell you a quick story. I don't think I wrote about this in the book, but but I'll tell you a quick story. And I know anytime you talk about suicide, you got to, you got to say, Hey, if you, if you need help, like go out there and get help. Right. I mean, this is stupid to not think that you look, go, go get help. Right. Okay. We, it's just a wow. split second. You just get caught in that moment and you can't see a way out. Yeah. And that's the difference between suicide and not suicide. So just, just go talk to someone. But I was managing a big business, a, a, a lot of financial advisors during the financial crisis. And one of our advisors yeah. jumped off the roof. And it was absolutely horrifying. A beautiful young guy with a beautiful wife and two young kids, his whole life ahead of him. And who, who knew? And I just remember, I flew back from New York right away. My my office was in Southern California, but I was in a business trip in New York. I flew home right away. I raced to the office and because we hadn't had time to get a crisis manager in there. And I walked into the first advisor's office, closed the door, and I'm like, oh my God, can you believe this and believe that? And I'm like, what happens? And he goes, let me tell you a story. And I went, huh? And he told me a first person story of somebody in his life that had committed suicide. And I'm like, I didn't know what the hell to say. But I exited the room as quickly as I could. And I went to the next mm-hmm. advisor. And I'm like, oh, can you believe what happened? And done, how you doing? Whatever. And they went, well, you reminded me of when I was a kid. And my neighbor killed him. And I'm like, uh, okay, I got to go. Why is this happening? Now? Literally, Wendy, every single person I spoke to had a story. And I wasn't sure how to relate to them, how to how to interact with them. And these were people I knew for a long time. Like, how did I know that they were that they were dealing with that kind of trauma? I didn't know. And when faced with it, even though I I knew them and I liked them and I'm like, they wanted to talk to me. I didn't know how to, they didn't know how to talk to me. I didn't know how to talk to them. Why? It's hard. It's hard. I get to finally, I get to the last guy that I was going to talk to because I know that guy's going to put me in a good mood. He's a wonderful man. I walk in and I say, hey, Stu, I go, can you imagine? He goes, oh, man, what a day. You've been talking to a lot of people, haven't you? I go, yeah. He goes, yeah, when I was a kid, my brother and I were playing tag. And he was a kid back in the 20s. Uh, my brother and I were playing tag. We ran into the barn and my dad was hanging from the rafters. And I'm like, what? And he goes, yeah. He says, you know, suicide touches everyone. It's just hard. And I'm just like, what the hell? Right. But my point in telling you that is that is that I can so empathize with your story because who can't remember a time when they said, man, if, if I just could have pushed myself to say on a little bit more, if I could have just been like less scared to say the wrong thing or I don't know. I don't know what it is about us that just, we just like, I'd much rather drop you off a casserole than ring your doorbell and ask you how you're doing. You know, it's, I think that's, it's just it's very human. Yeah. It's very human. How we do that. It's a very human thing. And I, and I feel for you as you're caring on so many deep levels for your dad and still afraid to say, or not comfortable to say like that What's going through your mind about the fact that you're going to die soon. Like, is there anything you can tell me about that? Because it's not yeah, a no. hard thing to say. Yeah. Ah, no, we- it's almost like you feel like, and I think you wrote about this, one of your people, one of the stories in the book was like, you you think it's almost like bad luck. Mm-hmm. Like you're going to get it too. Like it's contagious. Or if you talk about it, it's going to make it happen. Yeah. And if you don't talk about it, it's not going to happen. 
right? Well, and and it's like, oh, I'm like, yeah, that that makes sense. You almost think if you don't talk about it, the elephant in the room really is there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like and and who can't identify with that? So what I wanted to do with these stories, Wendy, is I wanted to say point A is when they encountered cancer, either as a right. daughter caring for their dad or as an eighth grader going on a field trip or whatever. When, when cancer became something that was at a turning point in your life, a positive or a negative trauma, whatever, but, but something that's point A. Point B is today. So how are you able to, or how are you not able to navigate the emotional side of the journey from A to B in relation to all the crap that happened before A? Because who doesn't have a bunch of crap that happened before A? And I think it's those things. Those million times that you told yourself, don't ask someone who's dying how it feels. Don't walk up to somebody who lost their arm and say, oh my God, how did you lose your arm, right? You told yourself a million times, you can't do something like that, right? And so how, I, I can get that. I understand what it's like to be abused. I can understand what it's like to make bad decisions. I can understand what it's like to have trauma and those kind of things I can identify with. Bob, well, I don't know what to say to somebody when you're in a situation of caring for your dad. And I don't know what to say when somebody loses their husband the night before, right? So why is that? What what can I learn? So if I could reveal stories like yours, if I could reveal the true essence behind the traumas that I could identify with as a reader, and I could understand how those traumas allowed people or prevented them from having these deep connected discussions with people, maybe I could learn something. And I, I'm not telling, you could, you read the book, you listen to the book. I, I don't tell people what to do or how to think or what right. preachy prescriptive at all. It's just revealing. And, and, and what I wanted yeah. to do with the book was to have people go, okay, so when you say you're okay and you don't need anything, maybe that's a clue that I got to ask you more. Exactly. Exactly. So what made you even start down the path of investigating how to talk to people with cancer and even start the interview process because that was a little bit of time to mm -hmm. gather these stories and be connected with different people and many many hours on the phone with different people hundreds of them how, how did that come about yeah so the seeds were planted in 2007 and 8 when June passed away. And then I would do these events. I did crazy events, you know, 85 miles solo run in Mexico. And I would do these four June and June events to raise money for the cancer center that took care of her. And, and I didn't, I haven't done one every year since then, but I, I did a bunch and I noticed. But you made it your mission to keep the June bug yeah. thing alive. Yeah, and we still we, yeah. keep raising money. And it was a giving back part of yes. what you realized is important for you as a person. Yes. And, okay. you know, very few people don't give back in one form or another. That was a way that I chose right. to do it. So it just it just became more stark to me that I would like to understand why is it so difficult for us to connect about the emotional facets of trauma. The suicide situation I talked to you about, my sister's death, some other things that happened. Like why why is it such a hard thing to do? So I said, the only way that I could be moved to get some insight into that is not by hearing one person's story. I love inspirational stories and it kind of, you know, jacks me up for a minute, but it, it doesn't go very deep for me. What goes deep for me is when I hear something a hundred times or I see it a hundred times and I go, ah, oh, all right, I'm a little slow, but now I got it. And so I mm -hmm. wanted, what I wanted to do was if you take a wheel, 
like on a cycle, cycle of lives. You take a wheel with a bunch of spokes. Each one of those sections, as it were, I want it to be a different age, a different type of cancer, a different severity of cancer, a different emotion. I wanted to try to fill in as many of the facets of human experience as I could. So I had to go searching for stories. I didn't want to find how do 15 women deal with breast cancer. I did, that's great, but it, it, it's too narrow. I didn't want to learn how to how does everybody young deal with it? How does everybody old deal with it? How about how right. I wanted to find people that had positive experience with cancer or inspirational things that were you know God when when somebody told me this one person told me about a woman who when she heard a diagnosis of a brain cancer. Uh, shed tears of gratitude saying, thank God it's cancer. And I'm like, oh, that was in the book. Yeah, I got to talk to that person. You got a little crazy yeah. and everybody thought she was crazy. And, and finally they figured out it was cancer. She thought she was yeah. crazy. She, in fact, she, she checked herself into a mental institution because saying that's it. My life's over. I've gone crazy. I'm the problem. Husband, six kids, the whole deal. And then when she heard it was cancer, she was like, so grateful. It's not me. I know, but, but imagine, imagine like how much you can learn from understanding how somebody could be grateful. So doesn't that teach you, maybe I shouldn't, I shouldn't assume maybe that teaches you don't know what people have gone through. And and that's so to fill in as many of those sections in life that I could, I cold called hospitals. I asked friends, I asked friends of friends, I cold called cancer centers. I said, who do you know? Do you have great stories? And then I would try to vet these stories to see which sections of the cycle I could fit in. And then also, and eventually, whether or not we could bond on a level that would allow them to take me on a walk through the darkest and deepest hallways of their traumas. And some weren't. Uh, Some I didn't have the skill to navigate those hallways with them. But eventually, a bunch, uh, we were able to, to really reveal everything. Everything that was relevant to the project. And yeah, this was the result. I mean, okay. So you've got these stories and they're magnificent stories. They are. I keep thinking of the van driver one, the Las Vegas. Oh my. Van driver. I don't know why that one sticks with me. So it, it, it so was, um, you know, some people go like, Hey, was anybody affected by your talk? You know, your, your time with them and, and Dominic, is the only one, and, and I don't want to be self-serving here, but he and I had a special relationship. I was very fortunate to come to his life. You weren't in, you didn't go to interview him. He's like, oh, have I got a story right. for you? No, I was Simply just, I, you up. I was just going to a rave with a buddy and, and yeah. we were just, you know, talking about long distance running and the bike ride that I was going to do and the cancer book. And all of a sudden the driver turns around and goes, you're writing a book on cancer. I go, Yeah. He goes, what's it about? And I said, oh, you know, I got all these stories. And blah, blah, blah. he goes, I got a story for you. And he goes on yeah. to tell me this story that I can't even believe. So Dominic and I talked for a while and hours and hours and hours. And, and man, oh man, was his, it was his story. Uh, it will never leave me. It'll stick with me forever because, because yeah. I, I learned something and I, we uncovered something together that a, a guy who had been through so much in his life some of it us uh, by his own doing right, um, right but so much so much tragedy so much difficulty like on a scope of what most people will never experience both what was thrust upon them and what they did to themselves and 
I'll never forget sitting there having a discussion. I was, it was nighttime. It was really late one night and, and he wanted to talk and I said, okay, let's talk. And he said, I got a, I got a confession for you. And I go, what? And he goes, you know, my whole freaking life, I've been afraid of dying. He goes, I'm, mm. I'm tired of dealing with that. And I said to him, you know, through a talk, we were talking. And I said, Dominic, you know what? As much as I know you now, I think your whole life you've been afraid to live because everybody told you you're going to die. And, yeah. and he said, huh? And I said, yeah, man, you, you've been dead since you were 19 years old. Like you were told you were going to die twice. Get your affairs in order. You have no chance to live. I go, I go, you, you're not afraid of dying. You're afraid to live because you're already dead. You already been told you're dead. You live like you, you live like you're not, like you don't have a life. And, and he had just started to turn the corner with understanding that he, he could live. Like he could, he could share his experiences. He could, he could be a positive, you know, interaction with the world. And oh my God, it was just amazing that we, we had that interaction together. And it goes to, again, you have no idea what people are going through, what they have gone through. And if you just give yourself a minute to sit back and connect with them in a real authentic way, in a safe place for you to say the wrong thing, for them to say the wrong thing, for you to say the right, whatever, but just connect in a real authentic way and uh, greatness can happen. And, and Dominic, you know, certainly gave, gave me a lot of, a lot of greatness in his, in his outlook and and in, and in sharing his story. And a lot of people tell me Dominic's story is really, really neat. That's a good one. Yeah. But isn't it true? Someone said this on the podcast. There's no wrong way to say something to the right person. Mm -hmm. yeah. If you can keep that in mind. That, I mean, I think that's huge. How did you, okay. When did you decide you wanted to ride your bike to connect all these stories? I mean, that ended up being to me as a ex-cyclist and doing long rides like right. that I could totally like the heat and like all that stuff I'm like oh I know that feeling oh I know that feeling some <laughs> of it was over the top like your legs being that sore and the lactic acid thing mm -hmm. and just I never had it that bad or the blistering on the backs of oh. your legs never had anything like that crazy but I had little little tastes of it and it really your trials and tribulations going through it was chaotic at times the bridges and the storms and the the troopers and you're going you're going into what was it uh the national guard or somebody yeah. was going back during the hurricane. they're like what are you doing there's a hurricane you're like yep yeah, i know <laughs> I'm, okay well good for you see you later like oh my gosh what what made you decide to interweave and do the bike ride to begin right. with did you have the stories first? Did you have the bike oh, yeah, ride in had, mind had first? I had the stories first. And by the way, isn't it funny that you say, oh, I got a tiny little taste of it. And meanwhile, you were part of a team that rode their bike as fast as they could across the country. Okay, so let's... let's. But I had breaks. I had breaks and I had people I around know, me at but all still, people, You were by yourself. How many people will look at you and go, there's no way in the world I could ever do that, right? Of course they did. Because, and you're, yeah. and to you, it's like, well, I did not. It was just a stupid little thing I did. So... Yeah, yeah it's, it, we're all just living our lives, right? We don't think anything special. So it was kind of a gimmick, the bike mm -hmm. ride, because I, I said like, oh, you know, I, I really do believe we're all connected by emotion. And, and I mm -hmm. maybe we don't have the same emotional responses to things, but we have the same emotion. Tell me somebody who 
it falls off a boat and gets stuck underneath the boat doesn't have fear. Absolutely. We have the same. Right. <laughs> Walk into a cave and, and a rock falls down behind you and, and locks you in the cave. And all of a sudden you hear a bear moan as loud as they can. You're going to be afraid. Okay. So yeah. we all have the same emotion, maybe not all the same emotional responses under all the circumstances, but very few people will look at very few mothers will look at their newborn and not be just this overwhelming joy. Right. I mean, so it's okay. Not always, but we all have this, the same emotions. And if we're connected by emotion, another thing we're connected by is if somebody says, Hey, yeah, can I, can I give you a list of things? You're like, I don't have time. Hey, can I explain this information to you? No, I, I don't have time. Hey, can I tell you this story? People go, yeah, I got time. So we're all connected by story. Mm -hmm. Who doesn't want to hear a good story? Mm -hmm. Love stories. Right. Who doesn't want, you ever have a friend that says, Hey, Wendy, you got a second. I got to tell you a story. Do you ever go, no, nah, I don't have time. You always say, tell me, tell me, what's the story? It's true. That's a very good point. Yeah, so, yeah. so we're connected by story. We're connected by emotion. And I said, well, if we're connected by emotion or connected by story, I had talked to almost everyone in the book for a couple of years. And I said, what better way to connect the stories than to get on my bike and go visit as many of these people as I can for the first time? Because I had been talking to them for so long. And I said, yeah, you know that, that, and I wanted to see if I was myopic in my view of do, do, uh, do people have a difficulty talking about the hard facets of trauma and cancer? And I, and I, and I wanted to find out what better way to find out than to get on your bike and, and go meet everyone and, and, and meet a million people along the way. And every single person I spoke to, every single one had some level of, yeah, I, I, I got a friend who's going through this, or I had a friend who's going through that, or I have a relative who's going through this. I don't know what the hell to say. Exactly. Every, some level, everyone did. And so I'm really glad that I connected the stories, but that's what I wanted to do is like in those old timey movies where the red lion follows the plane and you go, oh yeah, <laughs> I wanted to connect the stories. Well, and it also ended up, and I don't know if you set out realizing it, but it ended up healing you to a degree and having you work through a lot. Well, maybe not all the way here, but it definitely helped you work through a lot of your own pain and your, a lot of your own yeah. shit. Uh, you know what though? Thank my editor for that. Because when I sent her, uh, when I sent her the book, I sent her the yeah. book and it was 15 stories and me interviewing the 15 people. And uh -huh. near the end of my interview with them, I would throw in little tidbits of, or thoughts and musings about how it affected me or parallel to my life. And my editor goes, yeah, two things. One, you're not part of their lives. So pull yourself out of their mm -hmm. story that you, you don't belong in their life. And, and it, you're a witness to it. They revealed it to you, but you're not a part of it. It rings very not true to me for you to be inside their story. So m remove yourself from their story. I said, okay, that makes sense. And she said, the wow. other thing is, is she said, you got to, write about your bike ride and your emotions and your life and the things that you've overcome. And I went, no, I go, I go, Jenny, nobody's going to be interested. My life's not that interesting. Right. Cause that's what everybody else said. We all just think that. And she goes, what are you talking about? Your life? Yes. Seriously. Like you just, you just biked 5,000 miles, right? You got all these issues that you're dealing with. Like we all do. You know what? Reveal yourself. Right. Like I write about it. And I'm like, okay, I'll do it. But my life's not that interesting. She's like, yeah, it is. So 
everybody's is. So that's that's how it came about. I, I extracted myself from the 15 stories. I, she was right. I did not belong there. Um, wrote them more first person ish. Yeah. You know, which which was really hard, by the way. Well, it's so interesting how you do it. It's like you're telling their story through the eyes of themselves looking at themselves. Yeah. And tr try to you know, kind of. imagine if you and I had talked for a long time and knew each other, you know, through hours and hours of conversation. And then imagine me trying to write you in the last days of, of seeing your dad die. Yeah. That's hard. And like you set the scene. Oh. Like I could see the blue car and I could see mm -hmm. the, I could just see it all. I could see the kitchen table that they were sitting at these different oh, people. No, 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 no. And I could see the van, right. the Dominic driving. Right. And I could see him turning around and looking at you and going, oh, that, I that, story for you. sending them the story and saying, Hey, is this, does this capture the emotion? Does this capture what happened? It's really nerve wracking for me. Oh, I bet. What did they, I guess they all liked it. Huh? It's pretty hilarious. My wife was the recipient of a lot of my angst because, you know, here I was, I interviewed. You had a girlfriend at the she time, right? my girlfriend right? at the time, yeah. But yeah. Then, I actually, she was my fiance at the time that the book came out. So well, when the book came out, we were married by then. But but either way, when I'm going back and forth to my editor, right, she got the angst of, of my emotions. Like, I, I, because what would happen is I spent a couple hours interviewing people. I wrote the stories back and forth a hundred times, right? And then yeah. edited, re-edited, re reworked. And I, I worked for two years to write the story. And then I would, I would send it to the participant and I would go, Hey, Jen, like I finally finished your story. Here it is. Tell me what you think. And then like five minutes later, I'd run into my wife and I'd go, ah, they hate the story. They haven't answered. And she's like, when did you send them the email? I'm like, like seven minutes ago. She's like, <laughs> take it easy, dude. Like, take it easy, man. They, they got life to lead. I go, oh, they hate it. Wow. Because you're right. You were so exposed that there's so much that went into that. Yeah. It's your interpretation. Yeah. You want to be respectful of them, but you also, you you want to be right in your interpretation. Yeah. And, and so uh, not yeah. everyone loved it. A couple, I had to make some major changes to. A couple uh, said, no, nah, you got this wrong. You got that right. Right. But yeah, I wish you would change this or that. And I would say, well, you told me something 15 different ways. I'm telling you the 16th way it, it encapsulates those 15. Wow. So they kind of got, they, they gave me a little bit of license. Uh, some of them. And in fact, the, the one that hit me the hardest was Jen. Jen's story. Remember with the, uh, she, she was six years old taking care of her, her dad and nurse Jen and grew up to be a, a pediatric, pediatric oncology nurse. And, her story is phenomenal, but very hard to write because I'm writing about her experience growing up and how the loss of her dad had affected her. And she was such an optimistic, wonderful, you know, beautiful person, newly married, you know, uh, just to just living this wonderful life. And I was just like, man, if I get this wrong, I'm going to be a real angel. Wow. And so I sent her thing. Yeah. I, I go running into air, you know, oh, she hates me. She didn't answer yet. And finally, like <laughs> 10 days goes by and I've sent her like two reminders. Like, what do you think? And I'm just for sure she hates it. And she, she called me up and she goes, man, I, I can't tell you. Every word is perfect. Don't change a word. 
Oh, and that was probably the hardest one to do. And I went, oh my God, really? And she said, yeah, you know, I read it to my mom and I read it to my friends and it's literally perfect. Don't change a word. And I went, oh, that's so fantastic, right? What a opportunity to have told such a moving story and for her to say I captured her story. Then we know it's true. We, it, it, we, you know, don't make something up. Yeah. I can't, I can't get as much out of it, but if it, if it true right. is that. I'm like, yeah, it's, this is this is word for word okay with the person that it's about, then we can learn something from it. And the two questions you asked each person mm-hmm. in, in each epilogue, was it in each epilogue, was the the best thing about... In, in, what was in, it? in each prologue, so ahead of time. Well, prologue, yeah. In each prologue. As I said, what's a, the most positive emotion? How do you most positive emotion experience that A to B we talked about? And what's the most negative mm-hmm. emotion? Because that allowed us to yeah. frame it. And uh, I think it's important to understand that some people are going to be fearful. Others are going to be anxious. Others mm-hmm. are going to experience dread. Others are going to experience desolation. You know, that mm-hmm. I, I don't know what, 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 what can some, some fear, some optimism. I don't know what, what, you know, what, what they're going to feel. So I, I asked them to frame it in the best and the worst emotions of what they could experience. So they could what, see a 360 view of it. Cause not everything is all good and not everything is all bad. Right. It was interesting to hear, to hear each person's mm-hmm. viewpoint on that. What, what do you want? What would you like now that this is almost two years in the, mm-hmm. in the, since it's been released the book, what do you want to see happen? What 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 is this that you would like? Uh, you know what I mean. Selfishly, it'd be really nice if people read the book. Uh, certainly, if they bought it, one hundred percent of the proceeds go to support the uh, charities that were chosen by the book participants. So, hey, and any little bit of money helps. So, uh, and the great organizations are listed in the book and listed on the website. Right. So that's that's a good thing. Selfishly, uh, I want to grow my audience. And if people are moved by my writing, then that's going to spur me to say, cool, I'll keep writing. But really what I want people to get out of it is what I was lucky enough to to get out of it, which is little points of information into that real life experience of humans. Because it's it's given me the ability, what I've learned. I didn't know this going in. Mm-hmm. What I've learned right. is if you can have even a minute of authentic connection with someone, it can last a lifetime. It can really profoundly affect you. And I can think of, I only threw in a few stories in the book of people I met along the way, but I can think of people that I met along the way that I had a, I'll, I didn't write about in the book, but I'll never forget. I was just miserably hot somewhere in Texas. And I was so mad at the world that I was getting another flat tire and I was just like just, it was this poor man when you read this book you're not gonna believe how many it flat tires <laughs> and I'll never forget this older couple in an Oldsmobile it was a country road it, I was not on the highway at this point it was a country road and and they zoomed by me and then they did a u-turn and and they and they parked out and the guy gets out of the car he must have been 80 years old and he goes hey do you need any help 
And I'm like, oh, I don't know what you could do in my head. I'm like, I don't know what you could do to help me. I mean, you're an old dude, right? Like, I'm trying to change the tires, hot out here or whatever. And he goes, no, he says, you know, my wife and I were talking as soon as we passed you. And you just look like somebody that needs some help. Are you okay? And I'm like, all right, no, I'm, I'm okay. He's like, all right, well, as long as you're good. All right, I'm, I'm glad we stopped. And I'm thinking to myself, who's that nice? Like, Isn't that awesome? And it, and it just re- responds. It's it's it stick with me ever since. I'm just like, you know what? Even if you don't believe it, some people are just so freaking nice and so thoughtful and so caring, even if for just a moment to a stranger. I just was like moved by that. And, and you know, you could say it, but until you experience it, whatever. Mm-hmm. And so some of these stories, what I want is, long answer to your question, is I, I would love it for the reader to uh, to be moved in a way that goes, okay, it's going to stick with me forever. I had a gastroenterology oncologist. So think about that. Gastroenterology. Nothing good is happening yeah. with somebody who's that kind of <laughs> right? Right. You're dealing with hard stuff. And he wrote me this beautiful note. And he said, I read your book two times in a row. He goes, the first wow. time I read it as an oncologist and I read it with horror in my head. I can't believe, he goes, I can't believe how absent I was of awareness of what my patients were going through. He goes, and a question whether or not. As far as the bedside manner kind of thing. It made me wonder whether or not I was a good doctor. He goes, because I had no idea what my patients were going through. And he said, when I read it the second time, I read it as a human. He goes, and my heart went out to all these people that were going through this difficult time. And I thought to myself, wow, man, that's pretty cool. You know, I got, I got a note from someone who said, uh, after reading Dr. Meyer's story, I went to my doctor, wasn't an oncologist, it was just a regular doctor's appointment. And the doctor walked in, looked looked a little bit distraught. And instead of like worrying about me, I said to the doctor, I go, doc, are you okay? Like, you look like you're bothered by something. What's going on? And he and, and the, the person who wrote me the note said the doctor literally broke down and cried. Like, oh my like gosh. At that, at that time, Somebody, somebody cared enough to notice that, that this doctor was having a, a really difficult time with something. And, and she stopped and said, no, doc, what's going on? Are you okay? Like, what? talk to me. How are you? Mm-hmm. And, and the doctor started crying going, oh my God, like, like you care about me. So, so uh, just to know that these stories could move someone in a way. I mean, look, at you sent me a, a beautiful note, right? That, that it affected you. Um, if it, for one minute can can affect you in a way that allows you to have a deepened relationship with someone. I mean, and I could be the catalyst for that because I revealed these stories. How cool is that? Oh, it's, it's, I, it's, it's, it's a must read. I really think so. Thank you. For anyone that's human. <laughs> <laughs> covers it all. <laughs> It'll be a bestseller now because everybody's good. It's human should read it. But it was, it was truly amazing. And yeah, and I, and I love the idea, you know, as I'm, as I'm listening to you, cause you, you have voiceovers that come and do the 15 different stories, men and women. Mm-hmm. And then you do your own mm-hmm. voice of your story of the bike ride in between. And there are things that you're saying throughout there that, you know, I'm like, oh, that's like a Deepak moment. Ah. Or oh, there, there's an Oprah moment. There's a like all the all the people with really little nuggets mm-hmm. of gold being dropped, and you had come up with them on your bike ride, and you were in, and through the stories, and you were sharing them. 
And you, you have very wise things and in, in summations that you say and, and questions you, you pose, right? Like, and you know, when we get something in our head to, if we feel something and we think something, we should, we should not ignore it. Yeah. Right. And I was like, oh yeah, I totally believe in that when something drops in my head. So in my head, I didn't really have time, but I said, oh, I need to let him know right now. Mm-hmm. That I just finished the book. That's really I just cool. Gotta, I just got to fire that off, and I and it and it and it affected you. It yes. affected me. Yeah. And these are the things that we have to pay attention to. Yeah. Because listen, which is why Wendy, I love this, Wendy. At the end of your life, right? At the end of your life, if you're lucky enough to be aware enough at the end of your life to ask yourself a question, the question you're going to ask yourself is: Did I make the most out of the relationships that I had in my life? That's the, that's, that's the question you're going to ask, because when you talk to people at the very end of their life, if you're fortunate enough that they're lucid and you're lucid and you can connect on a level, they, they regret the people they didn't connect with. I never got to, one of the first stories to tell in the book is a guy who was driving a coin across the country to go put it on his brother's headstone because they were estranged for 30 years. And 20 years after his death, he figured I got to make amends, right? I mean- the thing we regret the most is what, what we didn't wrap up with, with connectivity to those. And the things we cherish the most is knowing that we, that we are loved by a few people and that they know that we love them. Right. The connection. Exactly. That, that's the, that. so, you know, th- those deep authentic moments of connection, they don't solve the world's problems, you know, but they definitely, they, they definitely enhance the human experience. That's for sure. Oh, absolutely. And then right after your book, I'm, I'm, I jumped right into, and I don't know why answers about the afterlife with Bob Olson Mm -hmm. wrote it. And it's about, you know, the near death experience, like what he's researched about dying and death and what happens and through research. And it's very interesting. And and the thing is the life review and how you feel who you hurt Mm -hmm. and what they felt. And then how you feel about all the the people that you touched in a good way. So I'm like, Ooh, I remember that kid in first grade that I was kind of mean to. Right. Or I remember, you know, I wasn't very nice to that, that girl on the track team because you know, she she bothered me for whatever reason. Right. And I, and I'm like, Oh wow, that's not good. And you just have to think about, okay, moving forward, every single person I come across, I need to, make it better, whatever it is. Yeah. Make make the day better, smile at them, whatever it is. Right. And it's not always possible. It's not always easy when nobody's perfect, but I love that. I love that thought. I mean, I really do. I I love that thought because the truth is you just don't know what the hell people are going through. You just don't know. You know, every time I, I, every, I just had a buddy here from New Zealand. He's been around forever. And he was talking about the story of how he got robbed at gunpoint one time. Yeah. And immediately I had this look on my face and he goes, what? And I said, dude, I've had a gun pointed at my head twice, twice in my face, twice. Once as a teenager, when I was getting robbed, when I worked at a fast food restaurant. And then once when I, right when I went out, out on my own. My car broke down in Vegas and I, and I, and I, two days later, two days later, I got a gun pointed at me saying, you know, we're taking everything you got and get the hell out of here. And it was a longer time. 
And, and, and he goes, huh? And I said, yeah, you know, like I never really dealt with that or whatever, but man, every time I hear somebody says they got robbed at gunpoint, I go, damn, dude, you were like, at, like if somebody had pulled the trigger done, like done, like yeah. who, who, how am I the guy that had his, you know, his face to a gun twice? And I'm like, well, I haven't processed that. You never know what people are going through. You, you never know what they have gone through. And uh, just a moment of compassion, a, a moment of connecting, a moment of asking, like when you say you're okay, are you okay? You know, a moment mm-hmm. of, hey, is there anything you need? You know, uh, it's just, yeah, those are, they can be profound moments in our life. And again, I'm not trying to solve the world's problems or telling people how to act. But I think from these stories, what we get is, that trauma can be a very lonely place. Secondary trauma, yep. secondary trauma. You, you watching your your father, uh, yeah, listening to your friend uh, on on the phone last night. Secondary trauma can be a very lonely place to navigate. And if we can just connect with each other for just a minute, it might make it a little less lonely. You know, push away the barriers that we have for whatever reason put there, mm-hmm. and go past them and ask the questions. And not be scared of what the answer may be and have faith that we're going to be able to, to navigate that. Right. I mean, in the end, it's having the conversations so that everybody can feel better. Yeah. The hard conversations are hard. We got to do them. We got to do them. We got to, I take my own medicine. So I, I saw a friend, not a close friend, but I saw a friend post a note. This was maybe a year or two ago. And he, and he said, I posted a note of him, a picture of him and his wife and their two kids uh, from a year ago. Uh, His wife had had passed away from cancer. And it was, you know, this really somber, like, you know, uh, man, you know, a year ago, you know, look how happy we were. And instead of pressing like, or instead of going, oh my God, like I haven't called him in a year. Like, what the hell? I sent him a text and I go, dude, it's been way too long. I just saw your post. How are you doing? Right? right. And then we have this like brief little interaction, you know, over a couple of days, a couple of good messages going back and forth. And I just said to him, like, I didn't disappear. It's just, I, we weren't that close. And I really, you know, but man, your, your, your post really affected me. And I just want to make sure you're doing okay. Like anything, like what, what's going on? Like, it's so touching the way you positively uh, you know, you show how positive you are with the kids and, you know, you're not, you know, hiding. I go, I, I just want to let you know, I'm, you know, it's, it's very moving. It's very touching and whatever. And we had this great interaction and I, and I felt like, wow, man, the David of before the 1.0 David never would have done that. I would have scrolled past that post as quickly as possible. Cause what the hell do you say to somebody like that? Right. You know, right. but then I said, well, you probably just that probably really made him feel better. I'll tell you what, that you I mean, feel for a second less isolated, right? I, yes. I, I certainly, I'm not going to make it better. I'm not going to make it go away. I, I'm not important in mm-hmm. this life. I'm just a passerbyer, which is totally great. It's his life and he's living it. But isn't it nice? I'm hoping that it isn't nice that he knows that some passerbyer cared enough to stop for a second to say, how you doing? I love that. I love that. What's next on the agenda for you and what keeps you motivated to keep going? <laughs> Talks like this keep me motivated. The demand for people to understand a little bit more about the human experience is ever expanding. That's why people mm-hmm. like you are finding a growing audience because the demand is out there. So 
you know, coming out of COVID and living in a world that's so angry, I think we can transform a little bit. We have an opportunity to transform because we all kind of have a little bit of the same experience, having come through mm -hmm. something like that. Uh, not everybody's coming out of it the same direction, but it, I, I do believe that I feel my interactions with people are more authentic, deep, forward-thinking, contemplative. And, and I think that's a good place for humans to be, right? Like, you know, and, and so what keeps me going is that I'm going to have a lot more of those conversations. I'm going to write more about it. I'm going to read more about it. I'm going to learn more about it. And I'm going to lean into the learning rather than leaning into the rearview mirror to say, oh, yeah, remember that, remember that, remember that, you know? And so I'm definitely looking at David 3.0 and 4.0 and 5.0. <laughs> so that's what keeps me going. I love that. Thank you so much, David. Yeah, being curious. Mm -hmm. Just being curious is is a huge, that's a big word right now. And being fluid, that's my other word, being fluid, that whatever comes in, you let it come in, you let it go out, and you just move with whatever's there. You don't control it. Mm -hmm. You don't stop it. It is what it is. Yeah, and, and, and that's a that's a wonderful thought. I, I love that. My my thought is always well in the last many years is am I looking down and assuming what's going on around me, or am I looking up and being proactive about my interaction with the world? Like, I'm, am I doing things on purpose? You know, am I doing things with intentionality? These, these you know, am I noticing when I'm ignoring someone or choosing to not do something or it's like it's an intentional decision. And so living intentional. So you see this fluid yeah. thing and I see this head up thing. And it, you know, it's it's just, you know, I think we're very fortunate to be able to have a space in our lives to think that way. You know? It's, oh gosh, yeah. yes. Absolutely. Well thank you so much for your time today. All the ways you can get in touch with David will be on the show notes. And I cannot recommend this book enough, Cycle of Life. It is an amazing book. And I will, I'm going to listen to it again when I'm driving to Pennsylvania nice. because that will take me the whole trip. But it's uh, <laughs> because I think I, you know, I know I missed stuff. I had to have missed yeah. stuff. And I, and I want to, I want to relive some of this because it's just the, the stories are real and you can, there's so much to get out of every little story that will resonate with each person a little differently. Yeah. I, I thank you for that. I, I sometimes will listen to a, a snippet or every once in a while I'll, I'll, I'll read a chapter because the chapters are easy. They're, they're pretty fast. And, um, and I'll just be like moved to tears going, what the hell, man? And then I realize, oh shoot, you're the one that did something. Like, yeah. You know, it, it's a, uh, the stories are very the people and the stories are very powerful. So thank you for taking the time. And it's very, very. Absolutely. Very thank you. Thanks to your manager for reaching well, out. Yes. Well, let's stay connected. And uh, yeah. you have a growing and dedicated audience. So if they want to hear from us again, you know, invite me on and we'll talk. Well, you got it. You got it. So thank you so much. And until next time, breathe in your second wind. Thank you for listening today. I hope that something you heard made you smile made you think and made you feel if these incredible stories empowered you awakened you or left you feeling inspired make sure to share with a friend and write us a review on itunes so we can continue to change lives through this content make sure you tag us while you're listening on our facebook group my second wind or hit the link in the show notes to join the conversation until next time 
Go ahead and breathe in your second wind.